Hello and welcome to Conversations from the ANF podcast. In this episode, I speak to Isha. She's a late discovery step parent adoptee, foster carer, and an adopter. Isha shares her experience of discovering that who she thought was a father was not as a teenager and how that knowledge has unfolded through her life. She's also a foster carer and an adoptive parent, and her personal experience has given her an informed understanding of the impact on identity of adoption and now influences how she supports her child. As always, if you've experienced adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please get in touch through Facebook, Twitter, or you can email us at andfpodcast at gmail.com. Hello, I'm Isha. I am lots of things. I'm a uh, step-parent late-discovering adoptee in that I found out my father wasn't my father when I was about 14 years old. Um, I've also uh, been a foster carer. That's on hold at the moment as I am, well, no, actually now completed adopting my daughter, who was one of my foster daughters. Um, And I really hope once she's settled in and once we've kind of navigated the first few years of uh, being together, I'm a solo adopter. So that's an interesting um, dynamic to it as well. And um, I'd love to go back to fostering because it was a fantastic experience. Mm. So that's some of the things I get up to. <laughs> and, and you got in touch with me and you sort of, you, you, you gave me sort of a brief introduction to yourself. And I thought, wow, there's, there's so many different ways this conversation could go. And each one of them is a real, is a, it's really significant. So can I start at the beginning then? You, you describe yourself as a late discovery adoptee. Um, can you sort of unpack that for us? And how did that play sure. out? I think I'm still unpacking it myself, right. you know, in lots of ways. Yeah. It's something that, um, yeah, as your brain develops and as your awareness and life experiences happen, you kind of go back to it and notice new nuances. But um I was uh, probably about 13 or 14. At that point, it was myself, my mum, my dad, and my two brothers who are uh, a few years younger than me. And um, I was sat down for a chat with my mum to explain that my dad wasn't my biological dad. Um, So, you know, 14, you've got all sorts going on already about your identity and who am I and where what's it all about and you know life in general so it was a little bit of a a shock and I went through layers of emotions uh, about it you know I think one of them the biggest ones was feeling like you'd been lied to for all those years and it just felt like everyone around you had been lying to you had asked if he was my father or not, no. So they hadn't, you know, literally lied to me, but there were things that were being kept from me. And I think that really shook my world. That was the first immediate thing. I was really worried, will my brothers still love me, even though we're half brother and sister, technically? Um, And yeah, just uh, feeling like lots of people had uh, kept something from me was definitely uh, quite damaging at that time of your life. I think there's never a good time to find out something like that, but mm. found, finding out when you're kind of 14. Um, and then um, I was introduced to my biological father a few years after that at my request, because I was really struggling to understand, you know, who I was. Um, 
and uh, that wasn't the greatest of experiences. It was uh, quite a, a difficult experience. And he was very different to how I'd been brought up. I'd been brought up in a very loving family and supportive family. And he hadn't had that background himself. So he didn't really know how to be like that. So, you know, you build things up in your head of how it's going to play out and how you uh, might interact. And, you know, you've got all these romanticized ideals that come from television and cartoons and things, and then it doesn't quite go like that. So it just felt like this layer upon layer of uh, disappointment and uh, confusion. And then it wasn't until a few years after that, coming into my kind of late teens and 20s, where the real identity issue started playing out because the my dad, who's technically my adopted dad, but I call him dad, um, and he is my dad in every uh, sense, um, he's of Jamaican heritage. He was born in Jamaica and came here at a very young age. So I'd been socialised in this part British, part uh, Jamaican, Caribbean, beautiful mix. And then I discovered that actually I have um, West African heritage uh, rather than Jamaican. So it was a great, it was a great experiment. Also, you know that nature or nurture discussion about I'd been brought up as a part Jamaican. I understood I've been to Jamaica. I've, you know, I understand patois and the culture and the food, but then actually, oh no, you're um, West African heritage. And some people who don't know might not understand how different that yeah. those cultures are, you know? So, um, yeah, that took a lot of years. Um, I think I was not aware. I know I wasn't consciously aware at the time, but exploring um, cultures and trying to find my place and try to understand more about myself. The added confusion uh, was that we don't know exactly where my um, biological father's father is from in West Africa. So it wasn't like I could say it was one country. Yeah. Um, we just knew that he was West African. And I've had um, DNA, uh, yeah, DNA tests done since then, and it points to West Africa, mostly around the Mali area, which is great because Mali has such beautiful heritage. I'm so, um, you know, I'm loving learning about it. I have le loved learning about it. So, yeah, it's just lots and lots of um, layers of uh, confusion and trauma and uh, just really trying to understand more about myself. I did have the anchor of my biological birth mum uh, always being with me. Um, uh, but, you know, as I'm a now a parent, I understand, understand and appreciate more that we don't have the answers. We don't have all the answers as parents, even though children think we should have the answers and they didn't always have the answers for me. And I think mm. it's very indicative of the times you know, um, whereby it wasn't understood uh, how harmful it could be uh, withholding information like that about somebody's heritage and identity. And now there's lots of books about it. You know, you've got um, Georgina Lawton and Rebecca Carroll, who uh, both talk about um, transracial adoption, full adoption, um, whereby one of them it was obvious that she wasn't the, her parents' biological child. And the other one, uh, 
it wasn't obvious at all and it was withheld from her and she was told that they had Italian heritage, but she was actually mixed heritage. And, you know, luckily now there's much more awareness, um, although there's still a lot to do. So I do a lot of work of raising the awareness, especially in the adoption and fostering community. Um, So, yeah, it was definitely indicative of the time where people didn't understand um, the impact that something like that could have. I mean, it sounds like a defining moment in your life. I mean, of course, absolutely is sort of pre that news dropping and after. Um, And did it sort of unravel your relationship with your mum as well? Yeah, I think it probably has given us additional challenges. I think mothers and daughters... Always an interesting dynamic, Um, as I'm learning now as the mother of a a five-year-old. It's so interesting to see it from the other side of the childhood, I guess, Um, from the other lens. Uh, Yeah, I think it was just confusion uh, for me. And it's never that I, I, I kind of have always understood that it was done from a the best possible place with yeah. the knowledge they had at that time. My mum wrote me a, a lovely little book um, that told me the story of um, you know, how she met my birth father and the circumstances around her making the decision to keep me and da, da, da. Maybe some people might say it was a TMI, too much information, but actually it was quite <laughs> useful to me. Um, so but I think, yes, over the years, and there was other things that happened around that time. My parents, not long after that, um, split and divorced. So that was added kind of um, uh, uh, stress and uncertainty. Just things unraveled a bit in the teenage years, you know. Mm. I left home at 17 and uh, had a wild few years trying to work things out and find my place in the world. So, yeah, but mum and I, even there are times where we don't speak as much, but we always know where each other is and we'll send each other a card. And, you know, we kind of, we, there's that, um, what's the book, the uh, invisible string. There's that invisible string that holds us together, no matter where we are and what stage of our relationship we're at. Because I have a few I have a friend who's actually was a late discovery adoptee, discovered at 17 um, yeah. that he was had been adopted. And he sort of described this sense of it just sort of put this question mark mm-hmm. against everything he was told by anyone. Yes. Had just not been there before and sort of impacted on his, on sort of every aspect of his life. But I'm not, I don't want to transfer that onto you, but no, is that, that resonates that with sense? me. It does. Yeah. So, um, yes, trust can be an ongoing issue in circumstances like that. And it's not knowingly, it's not like you, everyone you meet, you think, oh, they can't be trusted or Mm. is what they're saying the truth. It's just something that's built inside you after an experience like that, which can take a lot of um, unpicking and challenging and um, awareness, self-awareness. I, 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 take part in a lot of kind of alternative therapies and, you know, really get to know myself because of those, some of those things that go on, um, mm. that it does really impact you. That's right. So yeah, that resonates me with me feeling, well, you know, 
it's the people who are the closest to you, who you trust the most, who understandably have made a decision usually through the goodness of their own heart and thinking they're doing the right thing, but it doesn't um, take away the impact that it has. So yeah, it does. You carry it. It's something you carry for a long time. And I think you're either, I'm very much when these things become, come to my awareness, I'm like, right, what can I do about this? And then try and find either a professional or techniques or whatever it is that can start unpicking it. I think it's quite, it would be quite easy also to go down the other route and just bury your head in the sand and, um, you know, numb things and ignore things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of from an external point of view, looking in, it it makes perfect sense, but I can't begin to, I can't begin to imagine what that Mm. feels like. Mm. Um, so you then, I mean, I feel like we're covering a lot of ground. Um, uh, you are a you became a foster carer. So, what sort of led up to the, the the decision to become a foster carer? I think it was definitely impacted by the experience I'd had with my dad, who once I'd worked through, not even once, I think all the way through, I had this solid understanding that dad loved me. He chose me as it were and he I never felt any different to my brothers who were mm. biologic who are biologically his and we have a very very strong bond and a very deep love for each other we've been through everything together you know and I always said that if I didn't um or even if I did have children of biological children of my own that I would love to foster or adopt at some point. Um, because I've experienced being loved by somebody who's not biologically my parent. And definitely it changed the trajectory of my life, that my dad was in my life. And yeah, it was something that I was really passionate about um, sharing with um, a or other young people or children. Um, And so then I, I went you know, as you go through life and relationships and experiences, um, I didn't have biological children of my own for various reasons. And uh, I became divorced from my ex-husband. And I just thought, I just felt like this is the time. And I was Mm. at that crossroads of adoption and fostering. And looking back, I probably was a little lacking in confidence in myself of uh, adopting on my own um so and also I loved the idea of being able to help more than one child or young person as a foster carer um so I went down the foster care route um I had uh I went through the uh, panel process approval process with a uh, one agency uh, but I there was something didn't quite, it was just felt a bit corporate for me. Um, so before I, I don't know if I actually saw any referrals with them. I don't remember now, but before I uh, took a referral, I made the decision to move, which was really hard decision to move for an, an agency when you've just been through, you know, months and months and months of, um, assessment and the sole 
digging and everything you have to do as part of a, a, a fostering assessment. But I knew what I was looking for in an agency or a local authority and where I was at first wasn't wasn't right. I can imagine that that was a difficult conversation because they've, I mean, on a business level, they've invested yes. time and energy and money in you and you you then sort of put your hand up and go, um, maybe not. Yeah. So what's the, I mean, what was their response to that? Um, well, they had a few phone calls, kind of people higher up in the agency started uh, contacting me and, you know, not necessarily trying to convince me. I think they were more interested in my feedback which I right. respected. At least they were open to hear the feedback. And I had quite a little list by that point of things that had not sat right with me or, right. you know, and not petty things, quite uh, big things. And I just felt like I didn't want to be under the stress because fostering can be stressful of fostering as well as with an agency who don't communicate very well and, you know, um, were doing some of the things that were happening. So none of them could really argue with me in what I was bringing to them. Mm. Um, and by that point, I had been put in touch with uh, an agency who I got a really good vibe for. Um, and so, yes, I made the jump to the second agency. And I think it was around, it was a little bit swifter because we had the form F from the first yeah. agency and there was a person who crossed over the two. And so there was, you know, I didn't, it wasn't, we didn't speed through it, but we had a foundation to build on. Yeah. Um, and so I went through panel for a second time. I think it was five months later, four or five months later. Um, uh, so that was probably, I think I passed panel in October and referrals were coming in before I'd um, passed panel even. I was looking at referrals. So what were you um, approved for? Because some people, times people don't realise that as a foster carer, you can be really specific in terms of what you feel yes. you can and what would what sort of fits within your family or your, your lifestyle or your yes. circumstances. So what were you approved for? Well, interestingly, I, you know, when you go through the process, you have to really think about what you can do, what you can offer, what would suit your family and your lifestyle, etc. And I was quite adamant that I would prefer not to have a baby, um, any teenagers. I was really up for siblings, uh, two siblings, because of the size of the room. I had bunk beds. Um, so I guess in my head I had, you know, the idea of siblings who are quite close in age. Um, and, you know, I had thoughts about where, how far away we could travel, you know, for contact and things like that. And I saw lots of referrals who fit a lot of those, uh, requ not requirements, but, you know, just like criteria, criteria yeah. that I'd kind of arrived at with help from my social worker. And uh, yeah, so I saw lots and lots of referrals, some of them just heartbreaking. And I had to mm. really be strong with myself on a couple of them because you want to take them all, you know. But um, yes, I had to think about 
some of my own lived experiences and how they would fit with some of the experiences of the children. And then there was one that was very, um, I you know, was getting quite far along the process, but then we established that their birth parents or some of the birth family lived too close to me so that that wouldn't work. And then I think it was January after being approved in the October, um, the first one came through and it was everything that I, not everything, that's not right. It was quite a few of the criteria that I said wouldn't work for me. So it was um, uh, a two and a half year old and a 14 year old. So the completely each end of the uh, age bracket and they were from uh, a little bit further away, still in county, but um, further away than I'd originally said we could do. But there was just something about their story, their experience, the fact that the um, uh, older sister wanted to stay with the younger sister was very powerful for me. And so, yeah, that happened quite quickly once we... um, uh, started the process and so they were my first placement i i often um i mean i'm i'm a fostering social worker so that's yes that's my bread and butter um i didn't come to it till quite late um mm. but what i often reflect is that it's a bit like parachute jumping mm. in that you can we can watch films on it we can read books on it but there's nothing quite like stepping out of an airplane i'm sure Absolutely. i've never been parachute jumping but i can imagine um <laughs> And I think that oftentimes care is the first first children coming, and and I presume that you've you know you, as you say you're not a parent, so that's a that's a big that's quite a step, yeah, as well. Yeah. Um. So what was that like? You know, the you've got a fourteen year old, which is all the teenagers, and you've got a little one, which is all the babies. It was really something. Yes, as you say, nothing prepares you for it. I can still just talking about it brings back the the feeling from that day of just you know first of all you've got you know i think there were about five social workers here uh and uh the oldest arrived first just you know you've got these scared confused mm. um and all the other stuff uh little things and even the older one just seemed so small and fragile and you know, and when you've read notes on, you know, behavior or challenges and stuff, but then when you first see them and you can just feel their vulnerability and, yeah, you know, and so I just engaged with as much of my kind of, I come from a hospitality background, so connecting with people very quickly is in my skill set. So I was just thinking about, um, how to get down to their level, keep a distance that's comfortable, uh, think about my voice and just let my home, you know, the little one just was pinging around the house like an like a ping pong ball, just touching everything and looking at and flicking things. And, you know, and now looking back, she was in complete shock. She was, you know, completely uh, traumatized by what was happening. And it was just her coping mechanism was to explore and um, see what everything does. Um, so, yeah, it was just about, and, and it was funny, it was a, you know, oh, you you can, uh, it seems like a long time 
ago now, but you'll be able to fill in the gaps. You know, you're supposed to have a meeting, aren't you, with all the social workers like and a the IRO planning meeting within a certain amount of hours yeah. or. And uh, yeah. so they arrived at four o'clock on a Friday. So I didn't have <laughs> any of that. It was like they were here for about half an hour and then they left us. And then I had the whole weekend until Monday. <laughs> wow. Of kind of, and it was in lockdown. So um, it was very limited. Actually, lockdown worked to my advantage in that scenario because it meant that we were quite contained and, you know, um, yeah, we just stuck together. I stuck, the three of us stuck together. We did all the things, you know, going out shopping. They needed everything, you know, clothes, food. Um, gosh, the amount that was eaten in that first weekend was phenomenal. Um, so, yes, God, I'm, I'm getting back into it now, just talking about it. You don't always talk about it very often. But, yes, it was definitely shocking for yourself because... Mm. They're here, they're in your space, and you're worrying about what to say, what to do. Are they okay? Would they tell you if they're not okay? I mean, a two and a half year old usually wear their heart on their sleeve, and you kind of know what's going on with them. And there was a lot of dysregulation and a lot of upset, but it was amazing looking back on it now. But at the time, it was very daunting. Yeah. Wow. So you, um, in fact, sort of move the story along. You're now yes. an adoptive parent. Yes. So how, how does a foster carer become an adoptive parent? Because it's not, I know it, it does happen a lot, but it's not necessarily, it's a little bit frowned upon, isn't it? Or it can be. It can be. It can be, yes. As I say, it was never my intention. It just um, happened that way. You bond with the children and young people. You know, it's, I know some foster carers don't, but I think it's really essential um, to gaining trust and really, you know, uh, helping them understand what a relationship like that feels like, you know, and to anchor them with you. So, um, but I think there is because of the rules, um, you know, and the guidelines of, you know, where they can go in the house and how they can sit with you and, you know, those guidelines that do keep that kind of little barrier between you and them. Yeah. Um, and so I had uh, this uh, young lady who um, care proceedings, you know, how it goes. Some When you first get a placement, oh, they'll be with you for three months and then six months <laughs> and then nine months. And I think it was a year later, care proceedings went ahead and um, her care plan was, unfortunately, it wasn't reunification and um, it was a, an adoption order. And I was very, 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 very fond of her. She blended very, very well within the family. I had, it's only now, now we're where we are. I've and I'm sure there's more to come, but it's hard to explain. Like you feel your heart unlocking as you know it's safer to love. Yeah. You you always love the child from the beginning and you care for them. But once you start realizing you're going to be together forever, it unlocks other parts of your feelings and emotions. Mm. And 
Um, so yeah, I leading up to the decision being made at the hearing, I was trying to imagine saying goodbye to her and, you know, um, her move into an adoptive family. And I really struggled with it. And I had to do a lot of mm. thinking. I didn't talk to anybody about it. I Sorry, I spoke to my dad about it, but no, I didn't speak to any professionals about it. I really didn't want to impact the um, court proceedings in any way. I wanted m- my decision or interest to not impact things whatsoever, yeah. whether it would have or not, I don't know, but that I felt strongly about that. So I kept quiet about it. Um, but I'd done, been doing thinking about it for months before that. So um, I then uh, spoke to my fostering social worker and we had someone within the agency who had worked in the local authority um, in the special guardianship um, SGO uh, department. I don't know if that's the right word, but she was a specialist in SGOs because there was a lot of talk about was an SGO more appropriate than uh, adoption. So I spoke to her and she gave me some great information and a wealth of knowledge. And I was able to, with a lot of information, decide that an SGO, I didn't think an SGO would suit me or my daughter for various reasons that I won't go into. Um, And so, yes, I made my... uh, my thoughts known on a meeting and some people uh, used their poker face and some people (laughs) nearly started crying on the call. Um, But even the poker face people later on down the line said, we're so glad that you (laughs) made that decision, you know, and my family had no qualms about it at all. So um, yeah, it, felt like the right thing to do. So I then started the process of being assessed as an adopter. Wow. I mean, it's, it, you articulated that so well, that um, the idea of you unlocking your heart, but only mm. when it's safe to. And as you say, you, you then find yourself in part of this legal pathway. Yeah. And it's never, it's never sealed until it's sealed. It's exactly. never, there's no order till there's an order. And, um, yeah. But you articulated that so well, and I'm going to quote you. Mm, um, <laughs> um, so in the midst of all that, I'm conscious that part of the story at the beginning was in terms of identity. Mm. And you talked about being passionate about supporting identity, about mm. understanding identity and developing identity. So what were your thoughts in terms of you know, this little little person coming into your life about mm. their identity and how you... What do you do? How do you sort of act and yes. fulfill that? Yes, it's been a real journey, which we're still on and will always be on. But I have really thought about um, the importance for her to understand her identity and her heritage and to stay connected. So, um, you know. We have other experiences of adoption within our family, which I haven't gone into. Maybe that's another talk for another day. But again, it was about 20 years ago, and it was very much that dynamic, which still there are strains of now whereby 
there's complete cutoff from birth family. So, and I understand sometimes that's essential to keep everybody mm. safe. Um, but I think there were times where that happened in the past where it wasn't necessarily essential, but it was just the way things were done and that you would, there'd be complete cut off and not much support for birth parents or necessarily adoptive parents to keep those threads of connection. So from the beginning, um, because there are, there's a sibling group as well who, uh, around my daughter who are in different places um uh, different care plans so we've had photos around the house uh, from the beginning um of uh, her siblings um when she had her wish you well with her birth mum uh, we were given some photos so we've put those into a photo album and it's you know on her bookshelf with all her books and is very accessible to her she knows the the photos she knows even if she doesn't remember or hasn't met any of her immediate birth family, she has photos of them. She knows their names. Um, I had to do, there's a lot of ego involved for me personally. I can't talk about other adopters, but I think I was coming up against barriers where I, there's part of it where you want to keep your child safe and you just feel like, cause you know, some of the history that um you can i i was finding i was using the excuse of keeping her safe mm. um as reasons to not have as much kind of contact or um connection but i had to really really investigate that within myself uh, again as i said about being passionate about identity so um i uh put a lot of effort into uh contact uh, sorry not contact um annual newsletters for birth mum and uh, birth dad. Um, uh, we do a annual, at the moment, annual meetup for siblings. Um, and anyone who's involved in fostering and adoption understands that that's not just a case where we, we all bowl up to a park somewhere and have a lovely jolly time and off you go. There's a lot yeah. of emotional investment and preparation and framing and you know, we've done a lot, a lot of uh, play therapy at home with little dolls from the doll's house to talk about where siblings are, because for them to understand, it's very complex. Um, uh, sorry, I've digressed. Yes. Yeah, so newsletters and put in, I put a lot in there. I'm, I think about what I would like to know. And I really go into as much detail without giving, you know, personal things or where we live and that, that sort of thing. And I actually asked if, it was own, and I said to the social workers, please don't go to birth mum and say, Isha wants to do this. I don't want her to feel pressured. But yeah. if she was open to it, would she be open to meeting? And we did about <clears throat> two months ago, I think it was. Um, well, I had a brilliant, brilliant adoption social worker who um organized it and we met at a local authority office and birth mum was picked up by the um her social worker and it was great it was beautiful it was hard I'm sure it was yeah. even harder for her but um, I prepared some um, questions in advance little things like where my daughter's name came from um, you know what she's into and you know uh, any funny stories she's got and any old photos she's got so I sent those off 
over a week in advance so she could have a think about them. And then we met and there were tears, there were laughter. We had a few photos taken together. Um, so things like that. Um, but internally, I've probably had a few challenges with them. Um, and as I say, it's probably about part ego and part protection. Um, mm. But it's so important that you overcome those things and do what's best for uh, your uh, child and I am not opposed to having another one again in three four five years time and then another get one after that and my biggest thing I wanted to reassure her birth mum in that meeting was I'm not erasing you from her life mm. um, you know we have your photo and when I started saying about the photo album she welled up and she said really I said absolutely we talk about you you know I'm not here to erase you. Um, you know, I will keep her safe and I will give her everything she needs. And then when she's old enough, to, I'll take her lead on what she wants to do, you know. So I think that was so important. At the end of the day, she's a human. She's been through a lot, a lot, a lot herself and yeah. was never given the skills and the tools to um, provide uh, my daughter with what she needed at that time. It doesn't mean she doesn't care and love her, you know? So, um, yes, that's what I've been doing thus far. I've also kept in contact with um, the lady who used to run her old nursery. So maybe once a year we'll meet up with her in a park, um, keeping in touch with some of the social workers. We have become friends with one uh, of the social workers and the other one, I'm sure once we're signed off officially, um, we're going to stay in touch as friends because it's mm. so important that those people are still connected to her. And she's one of those characters that everyone just wants to see and see how she's doing and, you know, um, see how she's thriving. So, mm. yeah, I think those are some of the things. Lots of photos, open conversations, staying connected with siblings and birth parents as much as is appropriate um and just trying to put myself in her shoes as much as possible yeah i mean it sounds like you it's it's there's nothing haphazard about any of that it's very thought through and very um purposeful in in sense of what you're doing um and what do you hope for the future you know in terms of you as a family and uh you're a family now mm. um yeah what does the future look like for the two of you you know, that's a great question. And I think I put a, a few months ago, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself around that question. And actually, especially when you do things like this and you're talking about the journey over the past mm. however many years, I thought to myself a few months ago, don't worry about what the future is, you know, just let's enjoy this. We don't have social workers in and out of the house. We don't have health visitors, you know, it's just a different dynamic now we can lay on the sofa in our 90s her laying on top of me and you know we can just be natural and just get to know each other as I said on that new level you know so yeah. um I think honestly I think longer longer term she will be brilliant at welcoming other children into our family her nature is she's a nurturer naturally 
Um, but I think that's far too soon to even be thinking about that. I think I'm under immense pressure for us to get a dog. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I think we're going to be quite a formidable little team. We're both very go getting and very, you know, action kind of, uh, ladies. So I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but there's never going to be a dull moment for sure. I'm open to her taking me on whatever journey she's been sent here to take me on. And I got to try not to fight it and just go with the flow. I do feel like we were sent to each other. You know, I'm quite spiritual and I do believe in, you know, some, the, when you think about the journey of us coming together, um, and whether that's, well, it's probably a combination of what I can bring to her and what she can bring to me mm. um, and what we can uh, achieve between us. So the that was a very long answer. I don't know yeah. is the answer, but um, <laughs> I think it's going to be really cool and exciting, whatever we get up to. Oh, and that, that was a great answer. And I think it's probably a really good place to kind of wrap it up. So yeah. Isha, thank you so much. You've been so generous and so articulate and it's it's been You've given me lots to think about, and yeah, some of those that that descriptions have really given me a lot of um, yeah, a lot of time to think about my own experience as well. So, mm. thank you so much for your time, and oh, uh, thanks wish for you having well. me. Thank you so much; it's been great. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye.